0: Uh, You can open your Bibles to um, Ephesians chapter 3. In fact, I'm going to do the same thing. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to spend a lot of time, and I'm just going to start by reading the whole chapter, and then we'll kind of talk about it a little bit at a time um, as we go. But Ephesians chapter 3... That's where most of tonight is going to be focused. We're going to be all, around, all over, and most of the verses we're going to cover are going to be in your verse packet. Ephesians 3 would be the bulk of it. So let's look at that, and I want to read that, that whole chapter. It'll take a little bit. It's 21 verses, but it'll be okay. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right. So we've talked, we've spent some time talking about. Uh, the church as we've sort of uh, uncovered this we've we talked about the first week the unity that exists inside the body as a result of Christ dying and we, we looked at Ephesians 2 which is the chapter just before this one and in Ephesians 2 we see there that he has done a work in uniting two groups of people that were previously apart the Gentiles that were estranged from Christ that were, were had no hope of salvation without God in the world, he says. He has done a work of reconciling them and bringing them together. And, and from that, Paul draws on that reality to tell us that you are now a unified body. God has brought you together in unity. And then last week, we saw that there's, there's something that that means for our participation in this body in terms of our membership, when we say member of the church, we don't mean member in the same way a grocery store might mean member. Or a credit union might mean, what are they called? Not members. Mem- members? Members, yeah. Um, that a credit union might call its people members. We don't mean it in the same way um, that a gym would call its, its uh, people members. They have access to certain things. They have uh, access to the facilities, they have special privileges and things like that because they're, they're members, access to the services. That's certainly not what we mean when we say member in a church. We mean member in the same way that you would say my finger is a member of my body. The, it's membership in my body means it performs a function, a task on the body itself that all of us together have individual giftings and tasks. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about this last week, but the reality is every single person that is a member of the body God has put here for a purpose, you actually have a gifting that He intends for you, you to use in concert with the other members that are here. That includes the pastor, by the way. There is a gifting that the pastor actually brings. He's not gifted in every capacity. Believe me, my wife will tell you, if you don't, that he's not gifted in every capacity. This is a pastor of any church. He's tasked with teaching and preaching and prayer. That's specifically what he's called to do as he trains and equips the saints for the work of ministry. So you'll see in churches sometimes where they go, okay, if, as a pastor, here, here's your responsibility. You do all the gospel sharing, you do all the preaching, you do all the discipling. You all, that's not the reality at all. The reality is we together as a group all have individual tasks. The pastor also has a task of, of leading in that capacity through teaching. Um, but the way we view membership is you're members of a body. And the Scripture then uh, calls us to be guarding one another's faith. So you as a member of the body in performing the task that you perform are designed to benefit other people. So if God has made you a fingernail, He has meant for you to aid the arm when it gets a mosquito bite, right? Or as we talked about last week, the toes when you get toe fungus, right? <laughs> he's, he's, that's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. And so the the pivotal moment for for us is when we realize, look, this is what I want to do to serve other people. When Paul says, consider others more important than yourself, he's talking about the same reality that you are in the body serving other people. Okay, so with that in mind, we've seen unity that happens inside the body, how God unifies us through Christ. He makes us members of the body where we benefit the other person, but there's also a component where we are diverse, and our diversity should be championed. Now, let me pause for just a second and say, when you say the word diversity today, it takes on a whole different meaning than probably what it should biblically, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. We'll talk... Maybe we'll talk more around it, but you'll get the idea, I think, that it is a little bit different. When you become a Christian, you undergo a complete identity shift, meaning you're a new creation. That's the way Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I want you to really think about, just spend some time thinking on this for just a second, of what Paul is actually saying here. If he were to say, you are part of the old creation, you are born after Adam, he would be going back to Genesis 1, and there he would be saying, you see, Adam sinned, and because of his sin, all of mankind has fallen. Paul's coming in in the New Testament now and saying, The old, that is, everything under Adam, has passed away. If you are in Christ, you're brand new. That's why we use the term when someone comes to salvation of being born again. That's why Jesus uses the term born again in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus at night. Anyone that is in Christ is a brand new creation. And the way that you are a new creation is that God has given you of his spirit. Right? Remember um, Jeremiah 34? We see this several several places in the prophets where the prophets talk about the new covenant. The new covenant is coming. And how do they describe it? They describe it in terms of the heart. Your heart is hard, and you sin and you're wicked. And it's, you're, you're slow of, of hearing and, and deaf to God's commands. You have no desire to obey God at all. And so you're just hard-hearted. And so the only way that that can be overcome is for God to actually remove the hard-heartedness and give to you a heart of flesh. That is being born again. That, that action right there is being born again. And only God can do that. You can't remove your old heart and give yourself a new heart. It's not possible. You can't walk down the aisle enough times or pray enough prayers that you can remove the old heart and give yourself the new heart. It's not going to happen. What has to happen first is that God has to move. He has to remove your old heart and has to make you a new creation. So the way Paul puts it in a, a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Ephesians 2 is, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked, following after the pattern of the world. But God made you alive. That's the same thing. He's describing the same thing that the Old Testament prophets were describing. He's describing the same thing that Jesus is describing in the Last Supper. He says this is the blood of the new covenant. He's describing the same thing. God made you alive by changing out your old heart and giving you a new one. What follows after that? Well, now you see sin in your life. Oh, no. You have the actual ability to believe now that was not there before. You repent of the sins that are in your life. You begin to confess those and turn from them. All of those things are Spirit-empowered. He has to move first. And once that happens, all of the other things follow. So, Paul says, he describes that as being a new creation. Just like God put Adam in the dirt, made him out of the dirt and breathed air into his nostrils, God has made you a new creation, bringing you back from the dead and breathing into your nostrils the breath of life in the power of his Holy Spirit. Right? That's happened. So you're a child of God. God. He says in Galatians 4, 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Believe it or not, we're not all children of God as the world would have you believe. Certainly, we're all created in some capacity and in that sense, God is the overseer of everyone in the sense that He has He's the Creator. But the way the Bible defines children of God is reserved for a A group of people who are born again. You're a child of God and you're united to Christ. So what that means then is if my identity now is no longer in Adam, my identity now is in the new and better Adam, my identity now is in Christ, then my identity in Christ supersedes every other identity that I could possibly ever have. Being a Christian then is more fundamental to who I am than my family, my ethnicity, my profession, my nationality, my sexuality, my personality, or any other way the world would seek to identify you or claim that this is your identity is part of the reason why we're having such the problem that we're having in the world today, and why the gospel is the solution. Because if you identify yourself by any one of those things that I've listed, or a whole other host of things that could, be, could potentially be listed, all you can do then is see the other person as other. That's it. But the reason it's so fundamental and why the gospel is the solution is that it supersedes all of those identities and unites you to brother and sister. And so what that means then in the church is that you have a a people of diverse backgrounds as the world would define diversity. They come from different families. They come from different ethnicities. All of these different kinds of things. They have different attractions to sin. Their hearts are bent in different ways. And yet, they find all their common ground in Christ. They're united in Jesus. They're denouncing all of those ways their hearts are bent that would lead them into all kinds of other sins. So you could have, and this is where we, we, we affirmed uh, several years ago, the um, Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Statement on Marriage and Sexuality, which would recognize, and and we should recognize, that there are people that are bent sexually in all kinds of different ways. The command of the Gospel is to put all of those things to heal under Christ. That regardless of which ways we're bent sexually, all of those things are to be put to heel under Christ. So just like you could have some who are drawn toward this particular desire or that, all of those things are to be refused and submitted biblically to Christ. So all of those things, those temptations in our world that would seek to draw you away and define your identity thusly, the Bible says, no, your identity in Christ supersedes all of those other realities. So every one of those realities is in submission to Jesus. That's why you should be able to walk into a church and see black, white, Hispanic, who knows, however many ethnicities present, none of that really mattering as much. Why? Because we are united together in Christ. That's why at the end of all things you see every race, tribe, tongue gathered around the throne probably singing in different languages, I would imagine. So it supersedes everything. So what that means then is that our diversity is seen on the outside, but what supersedes all of that is our faith, and from the gospel then, we build all of our sense of community. So, so the gospel... Our mutual faith in Christ forms the foundation of all of our sense of community. Why that matters is because it means we reject building our sense of community on any other foundation other than the gospel. Now you think, well, yeah, right? Anybody else thinking, duh, of course, that's what we do, well, I'm glad you said that, because in just a few uh, slides, we'll see that maybe we don't always do that. All right. Um, But I'm glad we all agree. All right. I'm glad we all agree. I I baited you. Uh, No, I'm kidding. So we've seen that God's eternal purpose for the church, or, or, or His purpose for the church, is to display His glory to all creation, which is essentially what Paul gets to in Ephesians chapter 3. And so for hundreds of years, God had promised that someday he would fold people into uh, the, the family of Abraham, namely the Gentiles. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So he tells Israel way back then, oh, oh, I'm going to, by the way, Israel at this moment, remember we went through Isaiah not that long ago, you'll remember from chapter 40 all the way to 66, Israel is out in exile. They're out in the wilderness. And he tells them, it's not always going to be this way, but I'm not just going to save you. I'm actually going to make you a light to the nations. And when that happens, you're going to reach the ends of the earth. So what happens in Acts? Do you remember the book of Acts? Remember Jesus is there with the disciples? And right there at the beginning, I think I want to say it's verse maybe 8, 6 or 8 or something like that. He says to them, you will be my witnesses where can you remember it jerusalem judea samaria and the ends of the earth he's making them a light to the nations and they're starting with the redemption of israel by preaching the gospel there in jerusalem then it spreads to judea and samaria that's north and south of jerusalem and then it spreads to the ends of the earth. That is, the Gentiles. He's making them a light to the nation. But when does it happen? Do they just go, alright, cool, he disappears, and they just go, preaching the gospel? No! They go into hiding. And they lock the door. And they say, what do we do now? Actually, before that, they stand there looking up at the sky, waiting for him to come back. And you can just picture it. He actually sends an angel to them and says, why are you still looking up at the sky? He'll come back the same way that he left. For now, go do what he told you to do. So they go into a room and they lock the door. And when is it that they actually have the boldness to unlock the door? When the Spirit descends. That's when. Why? Because it's at that moment that there is new birth. He's removed the heart of stone. He's put His Spirit within them. And at that point, they become a light to the nations. They're Christians. And they go out proclaiming the gospel. And then what happens throughout the book of Acts when the Spirit actually descends on someone else? He he makes sure that the disciples who preach the gospel are aware that the Spirit has descended. They start speaking in tongues. And that is the marker where they go, oh, well, then the Spirit's descended because that's the only way that can happen. Right? So it's a marker that, yes, the Spirit is moving this direction. Okay? So why why is that the case? Because it's what we've been saying. This is when God removes the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh by breathing in them new life, making them a new creation by putting His Spirit within them. And then they go and they do all of these other things. And so because of that, he's made by bringing the Gentiles into the family. He's making a statement that the descendants of Abraham are not the descendants by blood. That's not what we're talking about. The people that are in Abraham now are Jew and Gentile. Gentiles have no business being in the family of Abraham. That's a Jewish thing. Even, you might say, a Muslim thing. No. This is a Christian thing. This is something God has done. He's taking Gentiles and He's taking Jews and He's putting them together in the same family, united now not only under Abraham but under Christ. They're descendants by faith and through that He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Alright. But it's not simply that these two groups... Uh, are, are, were different ethnicities when they were brought together, though they certainly were. It's not even that they were culturally distinct, the Jews and Gentiles, of course they were that too. Or that they were kept apart for theological reasons, obviously they were that too. But that they were openly hostile to one another. So you understand what's happening here in God doing this by putting His Spirit within them. He's overcoming openly hostile relationships towards one another. He's now torn it down and resolved it completely. There should be now no more hostility between two people that have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Why? Because the Spirit is empowering them to overcome the hostility. So when somebody walks into the room in first century Israel or wherever, and they see Jews and Gentiles intermixed, And they go, wow, I mean, this is a diverse group of people. It's not just that they're looking at skin color and they're saying, oh, wow, two different ethnicities are getting getting along together. These are people that hate each other that have now overcome hatred. These are people that would talk bad about each other that have overcome gossip and slander. So, Why is it then when we read in the New Testament, Paul exhorting these churches, put away your differences and get along. Why does he say that to the churches? Because this is the reality that Christ has accomplished on the cross. This is the reality of what God has done. He's brought together people that are openly hostile towards each other. He's absolved the hostility by putting his spirit within them. And His Spirit always gets along with His Spirit, right? So the parts that don't get along are the flesh, not the Spirit. So when you testify as a a, a group to the outside world, look how diverse we are, and yet there is no hostility here. You're saying to the rest of the world that is openly hostile towards each other, something different has happened here. That's the difference in what I mean. Just flip on the news. What are you seeing when you when you watch the TV? You see ethnicities that cannot get along. They see things in completely different ways, and it's not that those things completely dissolve, like go away altogether. That a, a, a let's say a, a black person's concerns about the way the world is just completely done away with once he becomes a Christian. Of course, there's still concerns that we as brothers and sisters should listen to and care about because we care about him or her. It's not that they just go away completely, but that we overcome them by our unity in the gospel. So a world that's tearing each other apart and that is at each other's throats because of identity politics, comes into this room or should come into this room and see people who are what they would say is of different identities all coming together and it's seeming not to matter. Um, I realize this may be a little bit of a sensitive topic, but if, if, if we think about the harm to the gospel that's done by segregated churches, That, that's a there's a there's a tremendous harm done there um, and, and I think for to some extent we have to we have to reckon with that in America there is Sunday morning is 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 really pretty segregated for the most part and that's not something that we should be proud of uh, it, it's something that can be overcome. It's not going to be overcome with the whole repent for something you're not guilty of. It's not going to be overcome that way. It's it's really not. It's going to be overcome by by all sides saying we have a mutual faith in Christ. And because of that, I care more about your needs than I care of my own. That's the only way it happens. I know that sounds pie in the sky, but it's not. It's a reality. And Ephesians 3 points that out that it's a reality. And it can be worked towards, and it can be had. And probably our Sunday morning should look a lot more like the kingdom of heaven, where you walk in and you see people of all stripes. And why is that important? Well, because it tells the outside world, no, we're not divided here. We're united on completely different grounds, on grounds that supersede all of the identities you want to play into. And none of that matters here. Um, So, he's doing the impossible by bringing together the openly hostile in the local church. That's that's who we are. We we are united in Christ, and that implies then that we're going to be a diverse lot because he doesn't just save one ethnicity. He saves every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. Um, And so that's the reality of the local church. Now, if when we say the word diversity we only ever mean ethnic diversity, then I think we're missing what happens in Ephesians 3, what Paul is saying. The diversity that he's writing about is any multiplicity of backgrounds where unity is possible only through the gospel. That's what we're testifying to. Unity that can exist only through the gospel. So I want you to think about the kinds of boundaries that have to be overcome when we're talking about unifying on the basis of the gospel. Boundaries that we're naturally drawn to. Alright? Boundaries that we will gravitate towards if we're given the option. So I want you to just think about who most of your friends are. Alright? We have boundaries of age. Don't we? So one, you know, Spoiler alert, I'll just kind of pull back the curtain a little bit. One of the reasons why I am not the biggest fan of Sunday school as it's been conceived in Southern Baptist churches for so long is because it groups people mostly together by age. And you look in a room in a given Sunday school class and you find in that class people of basically the same background and what is happening in there is a commonality that's found on the basis of age rather than the gospel so one of the things that i wanted to do was change that sunday school hour to be a building block hour where every 13 weeks you're changing groups altogether. And the groups that you're around are people that maybe you've never met before. Certainly people that are not in your same age, your same demographics, your same financial background, your same whatever. And instead, you're being taught by somebody different, you're, being, you're sitting next to somebody different, and that's part of the impetus behind that, is that you can get in this little ant trail in the church where you only ever see people that are like you. You sit next to them in church, uh, in the service. You sit next to them in Sunday school, and your group is found on that. And you actually never know anybody that has a different perspective than you. People from different backgrounds read the Bible differently. There's people that have been atheists their entire life and then came to Christ later on in life at 40 that key in on certain verses in the Scriptures that are kind of brand new to them. I remember my, my pastor, my former pastor, telling me he came to Christ at 18, and uh, he sat down with his pastor at the time, who ironically later was my pastor in high school, and we didn't even know that until I went working. This is another story. But um, he sat down, and he was like, have you read this? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever read that before? And Brother Bob is like, isn't that amazing? <laughs> just He has no idea that that's probably the most famous verse in all of the Scripture. I had just never heard it before. And so you need to be in rooms with people that have just come to faith in Jesus. And you need to be in rooms with people that just come from different backgrounds. And so that's part of the impetus. Multi-generational churches can often be a buzzword, but they're they're... Good for a number of reasons. Young people need to see old people die well. Young people need to be around older people whose spouse has died to know what that's like. And some of the young people may have these tragedies befall them at a what we would call a far too early age. But old people will sometimes... I, I'm going to say old people, okay, just bear with me here, but they will sometimes sell themselves short in the church, and they'll say, you know, oh, it needs, it's for the young people, we're doing everything for the young Well, don't sell yourself short. You have a lot to contribute to a multi generational church with younger people that are here. They need to understand what you've gone through. They need to see tragedy, and they need to see grief and mourning. But, you might learn a lot from them too. They might have a zeal and a vigor that you'd like to get back. And being around them might rekindle some of that youthful vigor and desire to follow Christ that maybe has been lacking. We have boundaries of economics. Boundaries of economics... A lot of your friends are probably of the same economic stripe as you are. But you got in in the church, you got people from poor backgrounds and rich backgrounds. And even James 2, 8 and 9 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He's commanding you not to show partiality in that body of people of different economic backgrounds. We have boundaries of politics. Some of you watch Fox News exclusively. Some of you watch MSNBC exclusively. Everybody here's like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> But those boundaries of politics, those influences sometimes come out in the things that we say, the way we interpret things, and those boundaries exist and we grouped ourselves together around people that are a lot like us. So we have boundaries of social ability. There's people with that are socially awkward. And you're like, oh, a socially awkward guy over there. I don't really want to talk to him, but I have to. Those are overcome. We have Boundaries of cultural background. How church should be. uh, What kinds of songs we should sing. What the order of worship should be. All of those things are vastly different. And you get a pastor who comes in who's young and he does things maybe a little different and you hate that. But if we're united on the grounds of the gospel, we should be looking at the content of what's being done rather than how we like it done. So in one sense, unity from diverse backgrounds is already accomplished on the cross. Jesus has done that. God has done that through Jesus. At the same time, Paul tells the the church at Ephesus in the very next passage in chapter 4 that they need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So it's, is it something that we've got, or is it something that we need to work towards? The answer is yes. It is something that we have, and it's something that we need to work towards, and we need to seek to maintain. And so, that's why ministry by similarity are, things, are kind of things that have to go. Ministry by similarity would be age, things like age-graded Sunday school classes and things like that. Small groups based on life stage. You got your singles and your empty nesters. I had a, a lady one time. This is at the previous church. We had uh, three singles classes, all under under my area of responsibility. Three singles classes. You may ask, what do you need three singles classes for? Well, first you started with just one. We had the singles. You're single. You go into this class, and then you got people that come in and they say, well, I'm single, but I was married for a long time and now I'm single. Okay, well that's a different, that's a different branch of single. I can't, I don't see life the same way as this singles group over here. They're out of college and they just didn't find a spouse in college and now I've had one and now no longer. Okay. So then another group comes along and goes, okay, okay, but I'm single because I'm widowed. I'm 80 years old. I got nothing in common with the 50-year-old divorcee, or the or the 23-year-old single out of college person, college and career. I got nothing in common with those. I, I'm single for a totally different reason. So we need another singles class that's just single for that reason. And eventually, you get 115 different singles classes because nobody's quite like me. You see. <laughs> but if instead. Everything was on the grounds of the gospel. Well, then now I can sit next to people who are from completely and radically different backgrounds and have actual common ground in the midst of the diversity I can have, unity. So we reject ministry by similarity and strive toward to maintain that unity on the gospel. We strive toward things that actually unify us on the grounds of the gospel and against things that would seek to group us by other means. Or how about on the grounds of consumerism? Surely you know places like this. Well, this service is the contemporary service. This is where we've got the songs written by people with skinny jeans and Deep V t-shirts. And then that service over there is the the stodgy service, as the people in the newer service would call it. Or the people in in the... quote-unquote stodgy service would call that one, oh, that's the hipster service, right? If you're all, if you got swoopy hair, that's the one you go to, right? And what do you find in the, in the, in the traditional service? You find a lot of gray hair, and in the hip and trendy service, you find a lot of, a lot of skinny jeans and deep v-necks. But it's ministry by consumerism. It's, What time does the service start? How long is the service? What kind of music is played there? What sort of order is it? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's ministry by consumerism. We actually as a church have to push against that and actually strive toward non-consumeristic service, unity on the grounds of the gospel. Or there's the kinds of invisibility of the majority culture. The other kind of thing that we have to push against and instead strive toward unity on the gospel. The majority culture in a church, whatever that majority is, is really blind to the fact that they have a cultural preference. Some of you that have been born and raised in the Southern Baptist Church, tell me if this rings a bell to you. Opening song. Greeting and shake hands in the Lord. Am I getting close? Another song, maybe a second song, offering, sermon, invitation, closing song, closing song slash invitation, and then introduction of members that join the church. It was good for Paul and Silas. Why can't it be good for us? So when, when, when the majority culture has a liturgy, which you don't understand that that's a liturgy. That's what you're used to. And when the majority culture is in there, you're blind to the fact that that is part of your culture. So when a person who's not from that background, or who that doesn't make sense to, or who sees Scripture perhaps differently, that that's not what we should be doing or see some traditions in there that are absolutely flat out not biblical. You go, wait a second. They come in and go, what? you don't see, and you're like, what? What do you mean? This is church. Well, no, no, it's part of your culture, part of your background. In fact, there's actually not an order of service in the Bible. Not an invitation either, but that's okay. We'll talk, we'll talk about that later. All right. Uh, <laughs> people in the majority culture. Uh, uh, so anyway. Uh, so, But the point is you become blind to things that are part of your own culture. And so we're, we push against that and say, let's actually just figure out some things that Scripture actually says. Let's try to strive toward those things and realize the reasons why we do the things that we do. So the community of the local church then has a a supernatural breadth to it. Its diversity is not something that we need to accomplish that's been accomplished by God in Christ. And it flows from His completed work on the cross. But it is something that we have to strive to maintain. So, we do have to push against all these things and strive toward things that unite us on the grounds of the gospel rather than on the grounds of something else. Questions? Go ahead, Sean. Yeah. You surround yourself with people that are different. So, in the church, you make friends with people that come from radically different backgrounds from you. So, let's do another one. All right, this may help. Here's one we've got actually in our church Reformed culture and Arminian culture. The tendency in the American church is to say, you believe in predestination, you don't believe in predestination. Since you believe in predestination, I'm leaving. Or, since you don't believe in predestination, I'm leaving. Right? What if, I'm going to be kind of radical here, okay? What if we were united by the gospel that Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the chief, and instead, we just decided to sit down next to each other and listen. What if we tried that? So how would that be overcome? How would the Calvinism, Arminianism, Reformed, Non-Reformed, whatever you want to call those two different categories, predestination, free will, what if, how would that be overcome? Actually, by them sitting down next to each other and talking. And at the end of the conversation, coming back to their mutually shared faith. Here's one thing you hear, I'll, I hear a lot, or have heard a lot. I really care about the unity of the church, so for the sake of unity, I'm just going to leave. I want you to think about that for just a second. I really care about our marriage. And for the sake of our marriage, I'm just going to divorce you. Does it sound the same? It is the same. It's the same reality. How would that change? So just ask yourself, how does the majority culture actually have its eyes opened to the fact that we are in the majority? Well, to your point, there's not much that can be done about that part. The majority culture, the pastor, his influence on the church, whatever, is going to basically have sway over the church. And eventually, the people coming in are going to be persuaded by, by that style of worship, let's say, or that particular way of teaching or something like that. And So there's a lot of people that are going to gravitate towards that, and there's going to be some people that choose to leave. And so before long, it becomes the majority culture, whether you like it or not. And there may not be much that could be done about that part of it. But the majority culture's job is to open its eyes to the minority culture. And go, well, what is it like to be you? When you hear this, what do you hear? When you think about these things, what do you think about? And maybe even help them understand why we do some of the things we do, why some of those things are not going to change, and why maybe you can gripe about some of those things, but it's not going anywhere. And maybe that might be necessary, but the reality is both are coming together and going, you know what, I do have complaints, I do have things that, 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 that upset me, I have things that I don't really like, but all of those things, if if I'm not careful, I will put ahead of what Christ has done, and I'll tell everyone else out there in the world, all my friends who know I go to this church or whatever, that what mattered most to me was the style of the music, or whatever, fill in the blank, right? hope that answers your question. I can get on the soapbox, I realize. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, but the difference would be the grounds that they're appealing to are other forms of identity that are not the gospel. And what we're what I'm saying is consider others more important than yourself. That's the essence of the gospel, right? So if you're considering that's Philippians 2. So Paul Paul comes in in Philippians 2 and he says, here's what Jesus did. He considered others more important and he died for them. He went to the cross as a slave. So have this in mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, consider, he, was, he was God, did not consider equality God, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And, and so, what he's encouraging the church at Philippi to do is have that same mindset that you would then pursue other people in the name of Jesus. It works the other way around, too. And this would be the big difference. The minority culture's job is to also understand the majority culture. It's not just the job of the majority to understand the minority. It works the other way around, too. Because each one, the minority and the majority, are considering the other more important than themselves. And they're servicing the needs of the other. Right? It works in a marriage that way, too. But that's essentially what's being said there. Whereas in, in the schools and in places like that, it's, Uh, a rejection of authority and power. And this is one thing that we have to kind of get used to, is that the culture borrows a lot of terminology from the Bible and from the Christian church culture. So they they borrow a lot of terms from the Bible, and then they co-opt them. They change them to mean whatever they want them to mean. So then, when they're preached from the pulpit, people go, he said diversity! He believes in whatever, whatever, whatever organization out there. And in reality, that's not the case. This is in the gospel, and it's being redefined. And in the gospel, well, actually, they are the ones that redefined it. It's being defined in the gospel. And in the gospel, both sides are coming to a, a place of consensus where they're, where they're seeking the needs of the other above their own. And that is minority up to majority, and that's majority down to minority. Or I guess you would say across, instead of up and down. Does that answer your question? And it's also realizing that you're going to be blind to some things that bother other people. That you're going to be blind to some things that really bother people. And you don't know what those things are unless you talk to them and you get to know them. And, you know, a young person says, I can't stand the smell of mothballs, you know, or whatever. I don't know. know. I'm just throwing that out there. probably just... Kicked off half the room, maybe. Me too, if that was the case. (laughs) But you know, it's it's that kind of thing, both coming together. Other questions? Oh, it's possible, sure, yeah. He asked if, if the division person that leaves because of the division, could it be because they're not born again? It's, that's absolutely possible. It could be, and there's a division there that's, that's uh, supernatural that we may not even realize is there. That, that's for sure. Um, more often than not, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. A lot of times, uh, the person is very immature in their faith, and they've never really understood what's happening here. And why the church is a different organism than social clubs, grocery stores, and whatever. The grocery store stops selling your meat, you find another grocery store that you like, go forth and conquer. I don't care. Right? That's not what's happening in the local church. Imagine there being one church in your town, one church, the church at Ephesus. And you're in Ephesus, and you got the Apostle John, an elder in the church of Ephesus, probably preaching Sunday by Sunday, and you got a whole another group of men that are pastoring the church and things like that. And do you just leave if you hate things? Or if you're disgruntled about something, you just leave? You can't! Where are you going to go? So you stay. And you actually build a bond on the basis of the gospel. You confront your own sin, you repent of it. Maybe somebody else confronts their sin, they repent of it. And they're forced to come together as a body. The only reason we're changing members of different churches like crazy in towns like ours is because we treat church like it's a commodity. It's something to be bought and sold. I can get that same t-shirt down the road and it actually fits better and I like it. The salesman's been nicer. nicer. What if instead we actually believe the gospel? That God can unite us on over and above all those things that would seek to divide us. And maybe in that, we can actually testify to the world. I started off not really liking these people. But over time, I actually got to know them, and I, I really did start to like them, and now love them. And you couldn't pry this church away from me. My cold, dead, lifeless fingers. Maybe that's what we do instead. Maybe we can actually testify to the world that something spiritual has actually taken place here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to come together and study your word. And I pray that this understanding of of the church, as you have laid it out in your word, as we see evidence of it in the scriptures, will be compelling to us. May it be compelling to the rest of the world too. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.